Hello, CAA. My name is Sunny Spillane, and I'm an associate professor of art education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I'm very pleased to have two guests with me today on this CAA Conversations podcast. My first guest is Joni Boyd Acuff, PhD. Joni is an associate professor at The Ohio State University, whose work centers on the intersections of race and gender in arts education research, pedagogy, and practice. My second guest, Amelia Cray, who more often goes by Amy, is currently an associate professor with tenure at the University of Arizona. Her research, teaching, and community engagement focus on how the arts and arts education can challenge as well as reinforce systems of inequality. She co-edited the Palgrave Handbook on Race and the Arts and Education from 2018 and is currently working on a new book with Joni Acuff titled Race and Art Education. Welcome, Joni and Amy. Thank you. Thank you, Sunny. It's great to be here. Well... Joni, you and I have known each other for a very long time. Yes, I know, Amy. Like, I think almost 15 years now. We met in 2005 during graduate school. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, sorry, showing our age a little bit. Yeah, I think it's been 14 years. Oh, my gosh. And we've worked on a lot of projects. Um, many of them deal with race and racism in art institutions. Um, I'm wondering, though, uh, you know, we haven't talked about this before, but when did you first recognize racism in art? Hmm, good question. So I'm from Starkville, Mississippi, a place with no art museums at all, but a lot of races. Oh, I was never interested in visual arts as a teen or younger, so I can't say that I made any, like, conscious connections between the arts and race. Um, it wasn't until I was 19 and a sophomore in college that I saw art. And when I say saw art, I mean like physically and metaphorically. So what do you mean by that, physically and metaphorically? So, I mean, like um, my perspective, it was twofold. So first I went on my first museum visit to see art. When I was at Penn State, we took a mega bus trip to New York City and we went to the Mall of Museums. And that experience was very overwhelming and I would call it very white. So that stood out to me very clearly. Mm. So did you perceive those two things as related? Um, I thought initially, like, is this something that only white folks do? Like, hmm, who is art for? But then on the other hand, when I started creating my own art just a few weeks later in my university classes, my instinct was to use the, the making process to examine and question things. And in, in that experience, I was trying to kind of heal from the racist violence that had been happening at Penn State while I was there. Um, it was around 2001. So I saw art as a means for this type of intervention, you know? So that's a, that's like a paradox. Yeah, I know, I know. So how can art be both white property and my personal tool for destabilizing racial power? So these like two contradictory experiences 
I feel like are at the foundation of my research that I've been doing for years around this relationship between art and race. And Amy, I know you've written about these tensions as well. You know, we've written together, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this idea of white property, um, I explored that in the handbook that, that we worked on. Um, Ruben Gastambide Fernandez and Stephen Carpenter uh, were co-editors on that project. Uh, so this idea of the arts is white property, uh, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So when, when did you see, first see race as being related to art? Well, a lot like you, Joni, my relationship with art really crystallized in college. That was about 25 years ago. And so I grew up in the, the suburbs of Atlanta, so I'm also from the South. And I attended a small women's college just outside of Boston. And the student body there was predominantly white uh, and affluent. Uh, but I was able to enroll in art classes. There were no barriers or prerequisite or folio reviews or anything like that. And uh, it only took a few classes and I was hooked. It wasn't long I before I declared my major in studio art, you know, and that led me to, to take some uh, classes in art history. Like those, like those survey one and two um, art history courses? Yes, yes, exactly that. Survey one and two. Um, so these classes, like a lot of survey one and two classes, covered the world of art. And they went back to antiquity, all the way through the European Renaissance, and then they picked up from there and went until the mid 20th century. Right. And the students, you know, we would be sitting there in this enormous darkened lecture hall. And I remember on a large screen, two slide images were projected side by side. And I was aware, I remember being aware that the professors, uh, you know, had this high status. They were renowned art historians. Uh, and from behind the podium, their pale faces seemed to kind of radiate with, a, with this importance, this grandeur. Of course, this was partly because there was a single light on in the room coming right. from overhead, spotlight right down on, 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 on them. Um, but you know, at the time I perceived them as authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, they, were, they were the keepers of art knowledge. Uh, and I did my absolute best to write down everything they said. And I remember having what I would describe as a racial awakening in that same auditorium, it was when a different person stood behind the lectern. It was a visiting scholar. And she delivered two or three lectures. Uh, and it was on the art, the architecture, cultural life, uh, the intellectual contributions of ancient Timbuktu, which is in West Africa, where, where uh, Mali is today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this was just, this was remarkable to me. So the first thing that made it just an aha moment for me yeah. was it was the only time that I had ever learned of great art, great contributions having been made by Africans. Right, yeah. You know, prior to that and following that, Africa was not recognized at all within the narrative of art history. Mm-hmm. And of course, the professors and the textbook discussed Egypt, but Egypt was cast, and in Egyptians, the Egyptian people were cast as though they were not from Africa. They were not Africans. Mm -hmm. It was as though Egypt were cut off from the rest of the continent. Mm 
And somehow, magically, uh, it belonged to Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, it was this kind of dismemberment of sorts. And I now know this is a very typical kind of characteristic of Western art history. It's like a worldview uh, yeah. that's promulgated in art history. Uh, it's a way of telling the story of art. But it's been constructed and retold again and again and again in textbooks, art history lectures, art exhibitions, and so on and so on. Right. So it's like, um, like, like the arts of Africa become white property. You know? Yes, yes, that's right. And because Western art history, we could consider it a racial project as much as it is an academic one. You know, most often Egypt is noted for its contributions to European art and never or hardly ever, I won't say never, but hardly ever is Egyptian culture, you know, addressed on its own terms right. or as part of the richness and diverse artistic accomplishments of Africa. You know, it's this kind of deceptive, discursive maneuver that's performed. And I remember it stood out to me so clearly at that time as as like uh, racial trickery. Mm, racial mm. trickery, that's, that's a good term to use. I know, it might be a little bit, a little bit piercing, but you know, I didn't have a, a language back right. then to describe uh, what, what I understood. And, and I did understand what was happening. I felt it at, at the gut level though. You know, I remember physically kind of rearing back a little bit and, and, in that small bodily movement, it was like some part of me was saying, hold up, you know, wait a minute. Yeah, so this makes me think about why I hated art history. Like, <laughs> like your story is making me realize simultaneously, um, I'm coming to the realization you just articulated why I hated art history. I mean, I was like so emotionally disconnected from the material and like you're right the professors were like quote unquote the keepers of art knowledge and unfortunately the narrative that they orchestrated with the art that they placed up on that big screen that you talk about it it didn't make me feel like i was um there like i didn't have a place within it like i didn't have a place even in the classroom so i was like wondering why i was even there most of the time you know, and I think that's a reasonable response, you know, that, that feeling of um, not feeling like you have a place there and being really alienated uh, from the story that, that you're being asked to internalize. And for me, that feeling of distance, I think, expressed itself over time as, um, as curiosity. You know, I was, I was perplexed and quite frankly, I was irritated, uh, but it was in a way that, that sort of hooked me and, and drew me in. Like I, I became very, very, very curious. Yeah, well, that's another paradox for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, it's sort of contradictory. You know, how did something so alienating also captivate my imagination? Like that's, that, that was a racial awakening and it lit a fire in me that you know, clearly hasn't gone out if, if we sort of look at the projects you and I get to work on together. Mm -hmm. As I think back to that experience in the lecture hall, though, there was another really more obvious reason it became a flashpoint for me. 
And that's that the visiting scholar who was standing behind the lectern was a black woman. You know, this full-figured, beautiful black woman. She reminded me of my mother. And that was a moment of recognition, you know, and I was doubly shocked first because of her physical presence there as the authority figure, right? right? She became a body of knowledge. But it, a, a sort of second shock was at, at my own surprise. Like I was aware of my own surprise while being surprised. And I was like, why am I surprised at seeing her there? <laughs> You know, in a sense, she was familiar to me and yet strange in this setting. Mm -hmm. And that just really blew my eyes wide open. That that day was really important for me. She commanded the attention and the respect of everyone in the room. And and I saw that I experienced that. And I became intimately and immediately aware of how pervasive but also how unspoken whiteness is in art and in my own art education. You know, this was a critical moment for me, totally unexpected and yet profound. Mm -hmm. And when learning like that happens, I think a person becomes or can become more perceptive uh, and attentive to norms that mask injustice. And, and I know I was changed by it. Yeah, but... So, Joni, yeah. when did you first learn about race? What was your aha moment, right? When was that? Where were you? What was that like? Um, so, I didn't learn about race or to even recognize racism in, like, one sitting, you know? It wasn't like my parents sat me down and talked about race. Like, come uh -huh. Let's sit down on the couch and have this conversation or over dinner or something like that. I learned about race more through these experiences and, and these observations of people in my environment. It was more... Um, Same for me. Same for me. So I learned about race mostly through like my mama and my daddies, their actions, their interactions with white people always seemed very kind of peculiar and very um, like timid at times. And I also learned through like conversations that I knew I was not supposed to be listening to, but I would like sneak around and listen in on. That was very informative. <laughs> Give me an example of that, Joni. Okay. So um, let's see. So the ways my parents and even my grandparents, aunts, aunts and uncles, um, play cousins, you know, talk, the way people talk, black people talked about white people and about whiteness kind of taught me that there were differences, hmm. differences between black people and white people. So for example, um, observing my parents engage with white people was very interesting. So when they engaged with white people outside of my home, it made it kind of clear or not kind of, but explicitly clear that there was a different way of being when in their company. So mm -hmm. for example, like their language changed, their speech patterns changed, um, even body position changed. Like my mother would say, she would correct me and say like, stand up straight, don't slouch. You know, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's kind of recognition and my ultimately my comprehension of race was really gained through 
um, like this accumulation of these reflections on these experiences in the presence and in the absence of white people, you know? Yeah. It was, it was also kind of confusing at times because, uh, you know, white people in the South, they're really nice, you know? Yeah. I'm from the South. I get that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they would smile and they would greet you at every corner. But then when I got home, my daddy would like unpack those actions very like explicitly. He would pick apart the acts of kindness, you know, that I just saw. And he would explain that like what we witnessed was basically racism packaged with a bow. Uh. Yeah. So for, for example, it may be something like um, a white person's interest in our new car. So they would say a comment like, wow, Maurice, Nice car. How much did that run you? And his translation would be, um, how did you afford that by hauling manure? You know, so, so okay, so give you a little bit of background. My father, he worked for UPS for 30 some years before he retired. But during that whole time, or at least as far long as far back as I can remember, he also hauled manure on the weekends, um, horse manure to make extra cash for our family. So that you know was used. Yeah. As, like mulch, no mulch now that we can buy in a store, but he hauled manure. And so the families he worked for on the weekends were all white. So that comment, he could translate that because, you know, he's thinking they couldn't see how a black man who hauled manure for them could afford a Cadillac. Yes. Right. So, so thinking back now, though, while I think I questioned his translations at the time because I was very young, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Um, but, but now knowing what I know, his interpretations were pretty spot on. So, like, based on what I know about microaggressions and implicit bias and so forth, I mean, he was doing critical race work before I even knew what it was or how how to even, um, you know, call it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have scholars like Charles Lawrence, Chester Pierce, and so many others in critical race theory who've helped us to think about how effective microaggressions are, and even to be able to name the phenomenon, right? right. To, to have a name like microaggressions um, helps us to recognize how real and how pervasive they are. No, I hear you. Yeah, and, and at this very young age, I learned to read racial slights and to recognize the basis, the bias um, undertones of the conversations that I heard, even though I didn't know exactly what I was learning at the time. So, yeah. yeah. What about you? Well, I learned about race in a very similar way to you, um, in the smallest little day-to-day -day gestures, interactions between people. It wasn't really a single spectacular event, like the grand talk, you know, or some kind of formal lesson. It was, it was informal. It was just part of the world that I lived in. And, you know, I'm, I am the product of a biracial marriage. My parents were married for decades. Um, and my brothers and I were raised by them in a biracial household. My mother uh, identifying as black and my dad identifying as white. Uh, but I lived in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. And this was in the 1970s all the way through the 1990s. And growing up, everybody... I'm pretty sure read me as black because, mm -hmm. you know, the rules around race in the United States are such that if you have one drop of so-called black blood, then you're black. And in that context, I think 
everyone understood that I was black because there's a range of complexions that are black, right? So that's how things were in that social context. But then there was home, you know, and we were just us. There were no categories, really. But I do remember one day, I must have been around elementary school age, maybe fourth grade, maybe fifth grade. And I said to my parents, I'm mixed. I'm both. I'm black and white together, you know, and they just sort of stared at me and uh, they didn't communicate anything verbally. You know, they just stared at me. And as kids will do, I kept talking. I went on and on. And I started talking about my skin color. And I described myself. I would say things like, I'm right between mom and dad, you know, pinkish beige and milk chocolate brown. And I'm right in between. I'm tan. You know, I was going through this process of trying to come up with a, a vocabulary to name my color. I'm peach. I'm light brown. I had all kinds of colors. And I didn't have anything more sophisticated than that, you know. And then my mom, she said, yes, but always remember that when you're out there in the streets, all they're going to see is a nigga. Mm. And this clear, matter-of-fact articulation of the state of race relations as they actually were, mm-hmm. you know, what Derek Bell might, might call racial realism. It, I think it can sound harsh to folks who grew up in uh, quote-unquote colorblind or color-mute environments, mm-hmm. uh, families. Uh, this is where you learn to avoid uh, acknowledging or talking about the way race operates, um, or even the existence of racism gets denied. You know, and my dad was probably raised that way. He, I never heard him talk openly about racism. Um, and of course, this is, you know, colorblindness is, is a really misleading idea, right? That if you treat everyone the same, you don't acknowledge race, that it'll, it'll all just go away, right? right? And of, of course, that underestimates the power of unconscious bias, mm-hmm. the kinds of things that your dad was picking up on. And of course, racially discriminatory policies, practices, and structures that were set in motion hundreds of years ago. But, you know, now you're a parent, Joni. We're right. both parents. Um, how do you navigate racism as a parent? Do you think your children have had their aha moment? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, one that I've struggled with for 12 years now. My oldest is 12. Um, so, but uh, consciously, though, as a parent, I've really been more intentional about talking to my kids about race and mm-hmm. racism, especially compared to my own parents and my upbringing. Um, so, you know, I said I wasn't raised to learn about race in this kind of sit down kind of way, but I have become the more like, let's sit down and have a conversation type of parent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ironically, I am that parent. So, um, but I think it's because, well, I know it's because I don't want my kids to learn about race the way I did. You know, I had too much analysis as a child, Mm -hmm. like deciphering and figuring out like, and most of the time I was just dead wrong or confused all together, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I don't want my kids left to their own devices to interpret race and their racialized world on their own. And, you know, I think that's a lot of pressure. And like I said, confusing for them. So they aren't learning about race in the ways I did. Uh, just, you know, thinking about the way I learned about race often made me question whether or not I was okay. You know, uh, okay being who I am when I'm in my home, hidden from white eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, I'm thinking to myself, if I have to change who I am when I'm out of the house, in front of white people, what does that really mean about who I am when I'm when they aren't around? Like, is there something wrong with that version of me? And if not, why am I changing? Like, why why is my way of being being created by something and someone else? Like, it was it was basically my my under my being was created by whiteness, basically. Mm. Yeah, Joni, that resonates so closely with you know the work of womanist scholars like. Patricia Hill Collins or uh, Brittany Cooper, you know, that's why black feminist work is so important. It helps to destabilize just those distorted understandings of ourselves. You know, it gives us the tools to self-actualize. Right. Yeah. I didn't have those tools at the time. No, it's, it's a different time now, right? There's social media, not to mention racial segregation of communities. It's more entrenched at, really now than it was before the landmark ruling, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that led to busing and other school integration uh, measures. You know, now economic segregation sits right on top, matching awfully closely with racial segregation. Yeah. And we have Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. in response to the police brutality and killing of black people. On top of that, xenophobia and anti-immigrant feeling um, to such a degree that we, you know, what was that, two months ago, the shooting, the mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, it killed dozens of people or killed a dozen and injured many dozens more. You know, it's just a different time. Right. So that means like, so this different time means that I have to um, talk to them with those different racialized experiences in mind. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I feel like I've had to have the tough conversations with my kids about race and racism in order to try to prevent this kind of stuff and or prepare them for experiences of trauma, you know? Yes. Like you said, it's a different time. Specifically, like, I can't wait to explain to them how they should initially engage with police if approached, even as children. Right. Right? Right. Like, putting that talk off is a life or death decision for the most part. Mm. So, yeah, it's important that my nine-year-old black son know that a 12-year-old black boy who was playing with a toy gun in the park was killed by an approaching white police officer in a matter of seconds. And this was only two hours away from our doorstep. So, yeah, I have to have these sit-down conversations. Um, I want them to have power over their minds and body the first time they're called nigger you know yes i mean the word circulated my son's second grade classroom for a whole day before any action was taken so i believe as a parent i have to try to circumvent as much emotional trauma that i can and for me i think that that's just giving them the power of knowledge and like explicitly having those sit down moments with them and what we're talking about here is education Mm -hmm. we're really talking about 
cultivating a way of seeing the world and seeing themselves and how they will be positioned in the world. We're talking about practices of looking. Right. You know, when I hear you talk about your kids, I'm, you know I'm raising two boys as well. Mm-hmm. And so I understand this tension between wanting to prepare them for the world as it is, the racialized practices of looking that they are going to encounter, that they have already encountered, mm-hmm. and have internalized, no doubt, to some degree. And on the other hand, wanting to protect them, wanting to protect them from trauma. Unlike me, you also have a daughter. Mm-hmm. For me as a young girl growing up, hair, hair was a powerful vehicle through which my racial consciousness was formed. Mm-hmm. You know, did you have any racial experiences around hair as a child? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> so tell me about that. Well, um, so when I was around nine, my mama took me to the hairdresser to get a perm. Well, a perm for black people's hair is like it's a relaxer. So it straightened all the curling kink out of my hair. It made right. it bounce straight, right? Right. A perm for white people, their hair gets curly. Black people's hair, straight, right? So, um, but even before then, I remember getting my hair straightened with a hot comb. Every time we had a special occasion, like Easter or Christmas or something, you know, something that was special. So with this kind of ritual, which included like me sitting in the kitchen, the hot comb on the stove, mm. I can still smell the grease crackling. My, you can literally smell your hair burning. You know, you can smell the curl getting burnt out of your hair. But um, so this kind of ritual, I often associated it with the times that I had to look nice. So looking nice equals straight hair. That, that was a relationship. That was very clear. Like when it's time to look nice, you have to straighten your hair. Straight hair was presentable for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah. How long did it take to straighten your hair? You have really long hair. Oh God. Uh, about two, two and a half hours. I would say from shampoo to finish, about two and a, two and a half hours. Um, my mama would start working on my hair around 6 a.m. in order to get to like Easter service by nine, you know, something like that. That's a long time for a young child, anyone really, but especially, you know, a young person. I didn't know it at the time, but like this constant need to change, to straighten my hair when I needed to look prettier, it impacted me and, I, and how I define beauty. And I think even more so how I define happiness. Um, I remember when I used to be alone in my room Sometimes I would wrap a long bath towel around my head and swing it around like it was my hair, like so long, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you said, like, I have a lot of hair. My hair is long. Um, and as a child, it was already pretty long. But I wanted it longer and straighter. So I would pretend to kind of be somebody else, somebody more beautiful. Um, as I think back now, I think Ariel from the Disney's Little Mermaid was my hair crush. <laughs> so, wow. Um, you know, but while pretending to be a princess, I don't think it's necessarily out of the ordinary for a young girl, um, who, you know, watches Disney movies. This fantasy I know has a different impact on young black girls. 
Because they don't, young black girls don't fit that mold that these characters were created from. And it's disappointing and kind of traumatic to a young girl's psyche to not, to know that you will never fit that mold. And kind of what do you do with that? What do you do with that information as a young person? Yeah. No, in third grade, I went to a neighborhood school that was probably 95% white. And then white flight happened and the Mm -hmm. demographics changed dramatically. Like all the white families sell their homes and move out of the neighborhood because the black families start buying houses in the neighborhood. They think yes, is there you know dropping all that stuff. Yes, exactly, exactly. And they often move farther out from the city, you know, into rural and semi-rural areas. And so when that happened, my school transitioned in just a matter of one to two years from being you know, about 95% white to being 85, 90% black. I mean, it was quick. But the teaching workforce didn't change much. It continued to have mostly uh, all all white or predominantly white teaching staff. And I remember in third grade, I was the teacher's pet. You know, I had never been the teacher's pet before. And the classroom teacher's name was Miss Ross. She was a white woman, and she made me feel so special. Right? She would let me hand out all the papers to the other kids in class. She let me grade the other kids' work. I got to sit right what? next to her. Is that what? legal? Is, that <laughs> <cool>? <laughs> Is it legal? I think we have rules about that now. That would not be allowed now. But back then, I sure did. I scored their work <laughs> and uh, you know, got to pretend to be the teacher, to be the authority figure. And I, I always had this sort of privileged location in the room, like on the carpet when it would be read aloud time. I would sit right next to her, like right next to her legs. And every so often during these read alouds, she would just reach down and stroke my hair. And sometimes out loud in front of everybody, she did this on more than one occasion. She would say, oh, Fluffy, I would love to have your hair. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh... You know, this is like small gesture, just, you know, it was an extension of the white gaze. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling awkward as hell as the center of that kind of attention. I didn't mind being the teacher's pet, but I did mind being petted. You know, my hair was no, well, it it just became so present. You know, I, I was not so conscientious of my hair before that. But all of a sudden, you know, it, it, I sensed it in a different way. Um, and it made me feel different. It made me feel exotic mm-hmm. and also like not myself, right. you know? So when I say I was a teacher's pet, like I was actually just that. And, and there was great affection, I think, authentic affection from Miss Ross. She was well-intended, but, you know, petting my hair, it transformed me into like an odd little thing something Mm -hmm. peculiar Mm -hmm. and you know for me listening to your story thinking about my own experience with hair you know it's more than just a topic or a fad that someone might uh create artwork about you know like it's a deeply personal embodied aspect of racialization i think for black women and perhaps you know women of color more broadly than that um it, it it just speaks so clearly to me of the aesthetic dimensions of racialization Mm. that's a good point can you can you expand on that a little bit more well you know Joni like 
right? Race isn't just about skin color. Right, yeah. Right? You have all these arbitrary qualities that go into categorizing people as belonging to one race or another. You've got eyes, lips, noses, language, accent, and most especially hair. Right. You know, those of us who've grown up in the United States are almost certain to have internalized the visual aesthetic codes of racism. Mm -hmm. You know, they live in us, they inhabit us in ways that I don't think we're entirely aware of, at least not most of the time. Um, These are the things that, that they're like resources that we draw from when we make snap judgments, you know, about others. Um, But these judgments, I think of them as being anchored or kind of, born out of European constructions of whiteness and whiteness as good, whiteness as pure, whiteness as beautiful. And I I really love this this is reminding me of historian Nell Painter, uh, who writes about this in her book, The History of White People. Uh, She describes the visual aesthetic origins of racial thinking, this, this tight link between whiteness and that which is worthy of respect or love, or admiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so this makes me think of uh, visual representations of black and brown girls on TV. You know, because because as a kid, my hair crush, like I said, was Ariel, but it wasn't a black woman. Eventually, I saw more beauty in my texture um, when I was introduced to Rudy from the Cosby show. Like, I knew my hair was just like Rudy's. But that was a little bit older as I got older, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, what you're saying makes me think that maybe if Tiana was a prominent Disney figure when I was younger, maybe she would have impacted me. But I guess I'll never know mm-hmm. at this point. But what I do know is that I've I've actively nurtured my daughter's hair in a way that models for her this deep admiration for her hair and this is I mean I've done this in many ways um including like buying books with black girls with curls afros cornrows dreads etc you know um yeah so I I remember I bought her this book it's called I love my hair and I bought this book before she was born Amy like literally before she was born. And so I loved this book so much. I literally painted four pictures. I did four watercolors um, of the pages, you know, the stills in the book. I just recreated them and wrote excerpts on them. And um, they they were on her bedroom wall when she came home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this book, so the book is about this black girl and her hair. And she she talked about all these different ways that she appreciates the complexity of her hair. And so, like, I used to read this to my daughter every single night, every single night until she was around four or five even. I mean, I, I remember some of the words. Like, like, one of the pages says something like, and it's so beautiful. I mean, it says, I can plant rows of braids along my scalp the way we plant seeds in our garden then wait and watch for them to grow I mean how beautiful is that yeah I love it um another one was like um described her hair as thick as a forest as soft as cotton candy um like a curly vine winding upward reaching the sky and 
it, it was just about the love of hair. I like I know these words. They are scarred into my brain, and I wanted the same to her. So, you know, because I know and I've experienced how racial hierarchies are constructed visually, I have made a very conscious effort to deconstruct them for my daughter visually as well. Mm, it sounds like an insurgency. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really, it's an insurgent visual education you are providing her. Yeah. Mm. I mean, all of her dolls, all of her dolls are black and brown because, you know, she's going to see whiteness outside of this house. At least I can do is nurture that love inside of the space that she feels safe and protected. Mm. So, so like even, um, like the quintessential childhood stories, you know, like Goldilocks and the three bears, I replace that with Leola and the honey bears and like that storybook, it replaces the, you know, the Goldilocks, which is this blonde haired blue eyed young girl, but she's replaced with the curly haired African American Leola. Yes. I mean, the, basically the same stuff happens in the story. She's, you know, bad and devious as hell, but I mean, the stuff still, you know, <laughs> she's changed character. She can now, my daughter can now see herself in this story. Um, you know, as a child, I never, I never read about Leola, but I damn sure knew about Goldilocks, you know? Right. That's yeah. right. Well, yeah. you know, we started this conversation by talking about how we experience racism and racialization just many, many years ago, right? Like 30 years ago as children, as young artists and, and, um, kids growing up. Uh, but I think the need for well, counter visualities, to borrow Nicholas Mirzoff's term, yeah. that counter visualities remain as important today as ever, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm excited about the number of contemporary artists and art educators from all backgrounds yeah. who, you know, they're identifying alternative aesthetic strategies, you know, and creating new discourses that, that really don't shy away from the politics of images and the ethics of image making. Right. You know, I, would you agree we're done I, skirting the issue of racism in the arts? You I, know? Yeah. From my experience, both with my students and with museum professionals uh, that I work with, I feel like there really is a growing consciousness or at least an increased appetite for more knowledge mm -hmm. and dialogue like the one we're having here, because that's, that's really how we're going to deepen understanding and grow capacity to confront with honesty, mm -hmm. right? With honesty and vulnerability, the role art and visual culture play and have always played in the construction of racial categories and hierarchies. Yeah. And at the same time, I think, um, that power of the visual can be reclaimed in, in ways that are explicitly and intentionally anti-racist, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was great chatting with you, Joni. And you too, old friend. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Joni and Amy, it was great having you as guests on CAA Conversations. Thank you, Sunny. It was Thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Thank you both.